Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. We are four weeks into the suspension of the MLS season with no end in sight. The Revolution have now had more games suspended than they have played during the 2020 season. But on the bright side, we're stuck inside, so why not do a podcast? I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me today is Sean Donahue. Sean, how are you doing? How are you uh, weathering the uh, quarantine? Man, is it really only four weeks? I feel like it feels like four years at this point. It's It's been a – I think March was the, the longest month in history. It felt like a, a good year. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm doing okay. How have you been doing? Uh, I make any money on that Belarus Premier League yet? Uh, I've decided the Belarusian Premier League is rigged uh, against the teams that I bet on. So I've stopped betting on – uh, <laughs> Belarusian soccer for the time being, but uh, or I'm gonna have to learn a lot about you know the Nicaraguan <laughs> Nicaraguan uh, uh, Premier League. Um, I think there's like is the only only league I can find information on. So uh, yeah, it's it's very very tough times for a casual gambler, uh, but it is what it is. I, I guess that's not the worst problems in the world right now. So I can't complain too much. Yeah, I think we're all missing sports though. <laughs> Absolutely. And before we get really get started, I, I wanted to move this to the front of the podcast. But for those of you who don't know, uh, the Rebellion have a fundraiser, a GoFundMe for uh, the members of the Rebellion that have uh, lost their jobs and have been greatly impacted by the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, if you Google search GoFundMe Rebels for a Cause, it'll come right up. Uh, but please consider a donation if you can. Uh, and there's other ways you can donate too. Obviously, uh, local food banks are uh, in need of uh, dry goods and, and food, and of course, monetary donations. And uh, there's also a shortage of blood. So, um, if you can donate blood as well, and if you're eligible, if that's not something that you typically do, uh, please consider doing that. But um, also, some nice prizes in that rebellion uh, donation if you if you want to. Donate. Yeah, and we won't give them away. You have to go to the GoFundMe Rebels for a Cause. That's a little teaser. Go, yeah, give it a click, you know. Uh, but yeah, it's anytime there's prizes involved, it's a lot more fun. So, but enough with uh, depressing real world, real world stuff. Um, let's get into the depressing soccer world, which has kind of come to a complete stop. Um, Sean, it's been four weeks. We have a lot more information than we did a few weeks ago when we did our last podcast with the All Revs team. Um, I think things were there, – there was a lot of questions surrounding then. We, we weren't really sure. We didn't really have a lot of opinions formed. A few weeks have gone by, and there's still a lot of questions, but we, we have a little bit more information, and, and we can kind of speak to this a little bit better. So I think that's why we're kind of doing this now. But um, first question, how long do you expect the suspension to be? Uh, and kind of as a follow-up, do we expect a 2020 MLS season? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough questions. Even even now, several weeks later, it's tough to answer these questions. I think um, anyone that tries to answer this definitively is just making it up. Um, but you you know, you look at the way things are going. It's it's hard to see when we're going to be in a situation um, where it's you know people are comfortable sending people back to a stadium to watch a game, and then you get to the question of you know could you be having you know closed door games. Um, and with a league like MLS that makes so much revenue in tickets and, you know, doesn't do as well necessarily in, in TV revenue as some other leagues, um, you wonder how feasible that is. Um, you know, at this point, I think July is probably a, a best case scenario. Um, you know, as for will there be a, a 2020 season, I, I think it comes back eventually. But whether that's, you know, July or even September and you have a, a shortened season then, 
Um, it, it's hard to say, and you know, nothing's off the table. Certainly, I, I wouldn't be shocked if um, you know there there isn't a twenty twenty season at this point. It's just you know so much is up in the air and. Uh, nobody really knows when this is, is going to end. And if it does end, you know, if it's going to come back and um, until there's a vaccine, I think there's no real certainty there. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point, too, of will this come back a little bit stronger? Because originally there was kind of an expectation that when the weather gets a little bit warmer, maybe it dies out. Maybe it's a little bit more in control. And then it kind of peaks up back in the fall when the weather kind of gets cold again. Um it doesn't seem to be that way. It seems to still be going strong. And, uh, you know, this is this coronavirus is impacting pretty much worldwide, you know, in Australia, where it's the summer, um, it is hitting greatly. Uh, I know in South America, I think Ecuador, uh, which is right on the equator is hit pretty heavily by the coronavirus. So kind of the warm weather theory that I think people were optimistic of a few weeks ago that it might kind of just go away as the weather gets warmer. That That's turning out not to be true at all. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, but even still, I, I looked up the other day, I saw there were odds on, as I was buzzing my gambling odds, looking for something to bet on. Uh, I noticed that there are odd, there are odds offered for, will the NFL and NCAA football season start on time? And, Yes was the underdog. I think they were plus 150 odds, uh, which is about – it means 55%-ish chance uh, of the seasons not starting on time. Uh, and that's pretty incredible. We're already talking about S- September and football being affected. Um, that's a long, long way from a few weeks ago when MLS pushed their season back to May 15th. Uh, and people thought there would be games on May 15th. And uh, I know some people are kind of we're, – we're hoping for games in June. Uh, I, I think you're right. July is really the best case scenario. Um, it, it's really hard to picture sports coming back anytime soon. Uh, and over the past few weeks, the curve has not flattened whatsoever. Uh, these cases are still going up and up and up. So you have to think at a minimum we have to see a little bit of a slowdown before we even begin to talk about uh sports coming back. And um, I mean, the fact that we're already talking about the NFL and NCAA football seasons being postponed, uh, California governor Gavin Newsom said that he does not expect uh, football games to be played in September with large crowds. Um, I mean, it's, if we're already talking about the fall, I don't see how MLS gets a season in. I mean, they've already extended the training moratorium. So players, you know, can't even train as a group until April 24th. So, uh, you know, at that point, that's hypothetically, let's say they get back to training April 24th, which I don't, well, after April 24th, hypothetically, they get back to training that next Monday, which I don't see happening. Um, You know, they probably need a month as, you know, a soccer team or, you know, at least three weeks to get it back into the shape at this point, because this is you know going on to being you know, even longer than a full off season. Um, so yeah, you know at, th- at that point you're you are already talking about all of May being done and then June. And I don't, and realistically, I don't think April twenty fourth is going to be you know when when the training moratorium actually ends up ending. One thing you mentioned too is that MLS relies on a lot of their revenue from uh, ticket sales uh, from. Not not on TV rights, but actually more in-person experience. And there's also a lot of concerns. Um, th- this might be a little supplemental to some other podcasts I've listened to. I know Tom Quinlan had a podcast on Friday where he mentioned, you know, a lot of people aren't going to go back to a stadium uh, to watch a game. Like there's going to be a bit of a uh, gun-shy public to go to a crowded stadium, you know, as early as June and July. So even if you do start off the season, uh, you know, this summer, you're going to have people that aren't exactly going to be filling the stadiums. Um, with that kind of in mind, would you what are your thoughts on doing 
closed door, closed door matches, maybe doing a neutral location where teams kind of play out their season in Florida. I know the NBA has talked about potentially doing Las Vegas. Um, I know MLB, there's a report saying they're considering playing games at their spring training venues. Um, do you think that it would be wise for the MLS to try to go forward with some closed door matches? Yeah, the whole the whole neutral venue thing, I don't really get. I don't understand how you convince uh, you know all your players to leave their families for a month at a time or something and go somewhere else. And you know, while this is going on, kind of abandon your families to to go play soccer in a neutral location. Um, as far as closed door matches, it, it, it seems like you know there's a good chance it's going to have to be the reality for a little while because you know even when it becomes safer um, to get you know. To get Seattle packing forty thousand in the stands, or Atlanta packing sixty thousand, or even you know the Revs getting you know twenty thousand um, in the stands, is it just seems uh, it's like it's going to be a while before people are comfortable that that's safe. Um, so uh, you know, it's, it, you know whether or not that is financially feasible for MLS, I don't know, um, but it it does seem like in some sense that they're probably going to have to do that if they're going to try to start the season at any you know reasonable point in time. Um, but with that said, um, I know you and I have both watched some, some empty stadium matches um, with, with all that's been going on. And it's just, you know, sports aren't the same without a crowd there. The atmosphere is a big part of sports. Um, you know, just from watching some of those games on TV, watching Turkish league games on TV and empty stadiums, you know, there's a, a novelty factor to it and that you can kind of hear the players yelling at each other and some stuff that you wouldn't normally hear, but eventually it just kind of, it doesn't feel real. Um, in that, you know, hollow stadium with no atmosphere, it's, it's a kind of a completely different thing. Part of sports is the atmosphere. And I think even players too, um, don't necessarily, uh, play with the same level of passion when there's not fans behind them. Uh, I think it was LeBron James that at, at one point when they were talking about playing NBA games behind closed doors that he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't play without fans. So, um, and you can kind of see why, uh, but yeah, that might end up having to be the reality for a month or two when, you know, it's safe enough to do that, but not, you know, safe enough to have people in the stands yet. And I mean, you mentioned a completely different atmosphere. Um, I know there's probably a full 10 people who listen to this podcast that also are wrestling fans. WrestleMania happened last night with no fans in it, and I watched a bit of it. And the best description I saw was it looked like a high-budget Eric Andre sketch where it's just a lot of awkward crashing and smashing around. And um, it's just very bizarre. It's just so silent. Um, and, and certainly something like wrestling where you're basically going for nothing but crowd reactions, uh, I, I think that's amplified. But um, in terms of soccer, I was actually going to go the other way, Sean, because, I mean, since we're Revolution fans, aren't all home games an empty stadium match? <laughs> I think Bruce Arena basically <laughs> said something like that when he, when he got asked about playing empty stadium games, which was which was pretty. I, I, if anything, I think uh, there'd be a home field advantage for the Revolution if they ended up doing something like that. But but no, um, I mean, if I'm the uh, if I'm MLS, you, I think it's important for them to get it back and be the first back at playing games. That's going to be extremely hard to do, but. You know, MLS has kind of been looking at the slow growth of the league. And I think from a business standpoint, I think if MLS is able to still put a product on the field uh, and are able to not necessarily be first back to market, but let's say the NHL and NBA cancel their postseasons, which honestly I think is probably going to happen. If we're talking about going into June and July, I don't think NBA and NHL have a chance of coming back this year. Um, I mean, MLS has a, a potential to, if they're able to arrange some sort of empty stadium match and they're able to do it in a closed location that's very safe for all of the players, even if it's just for a few months, I, I know there'd be a lot of logistical issues and they would need it signed off by the MLSPA, which will, I'll, I'll kind of go into that, the, kind of the legal stuff in a, a few minutes. But um, I think if you're able to do that, I think you're going to convert a lot of people to 
uh, uh, soccer. I think a lot of people are going to watch just because there's nothing else to watch right now. I mean, there's absolutely no sports. People are watching esports. People are watching table tennis. Uh, people are watching marble racing. Uh, I, I think if uh, MLS is the first American sports league back, uh, I think that's actually a pretty decent business opportunity in making a, a, a bit of positive out of a really, really terrible situation. Uh, they're going to lose a lot of revenue doing that, though. Um, there's a lot. They're not going to be gaining any in-game revenue. Um, you know, their their TV contracts. It's not like they're going to be able to negotiate them up uh, for this little bit of time. But I, I think you're going to be able to convert a lot of fans and get a lot of more fans watching soccer uh, if you're able to somehow find a way and devise a way uh, to to start games ahead of MLB. Yeah, if, if I was a betting man, though, I would be betting on MLB being the, the first sport to come back um, for a lot of reasons. You know, one of which is I think it's a sport that is more adept to kind of making slight modifications to the rules and and by doing so taking less time to get ready for a season um you know MLB already expands the rosters late in the season if they started the season with an expanded roster that put them in a position where you know pitchers wouldn't necessarily starting pitchers wouldn't be expected to go six innings maybe they're expected to go four innings to kind of build their way back up you can kind of do that in baseball in a way you can't really do that in soccer I don't I, I think I heard somebody mention making there be unlimited subs in MLS which I think just changes the sport so much that um I, I don't really see that happening um, but I think that's one of the things that kind of works against soccer. But also, if you're talking about social distancing, baseball is a sport that's a bit better designed for that on the field than, than soccer is, where there's a lot more contact. Uh, that is true. And, Sean, if you were a gambling man, you could actually gamble on which league comes back first. MLB is minus 145. MLS is plus 109. Uh, so it's uh, about 50, you know, 45 to 48 percent that MLS is coming back first, but MLB a slight favorite uh, that they will start games before MLS. And and as you said, um, I, I think it's because MLB has a little bit more options. I think it's easier to train for baseball individually as opposed to MLS, which there's a lot yeah. more of a teamwork component. Um, there's just a lot more complexities to MLS and formations and working as a team, whereas MLB, uh, you know, they do spring training, but I think players can kind of train on their own. There isn't a lot of teamwork uh, components that uh, you know go into their preseason it's more just getting back to peak physical fitness and if all these athletes are training uh, individually throughout this time I, I think MLB has a, a clear advantage to come back uh, one other big question too that's gone around is the possibility of MLS finally switching over to a European schedule um, you know maybe starting in the fall playing through the winter uh, and, and ending in the spring or summer Sean what are your thoughts about MLS potentially uh, converting with the rest of the world and uh, using their metric schedule. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at, you know, things to do to make this season happen, and if you're someone that was already on board the idea of switching to a European schedule, which I certainly am not, um, I can see why you might think that. Uh, certainly now the, with this break and this kind of forced break, it would kind of give them the opportunity to, to do that scheduling. Um, but I, I still just don't think it's feasible for the same reasons I've never thought it was feasible, which is, you know, you, you have a lot of teams in MLS that are playing, you know, in the northern parts of the United States and even in Canada. You have, you know, the Revolution that play in an open open Gillette Stadium. You have the Chicago Fire. You, you know, there's no shortage of MLS teams that – Toronto, there's no shortage of MLS teams that play um, without a roof in very cold climates. And if you, you know, 
know, if you expect Revolution fans to be showing up to games in January or February, you know, yes, we've had a somewhat mild winter the past couple winters, but uh, that's not always going to be the reality. And, you know, people that have lived in New England a long time recognize how terrible winters can be here. Um, and, you know, unless the Revolution are going to be playing three months on the road um, and Chicago is going to be playing three months on the road and Toronto is going to be playing three months on the road and the Montreal Impact are going to be playing at Olympic Stadium on that terrible turf that everyone complains about under under that roof. Um, and, you know, several other teams, too, you know, Columbus, New York, you know, lots of teams would be fighting with this this terrible weather. It's just not a league in a region where that makes any sense to me. Um, and then there's also the aspect of, you know, do you really want to be competing um, against, you know, NFL, NBA, NHL, and, and you know, all those leagues and, and kind of the peak of their playoffs um, and the peak of their seasons? Um, and I'm not sure the answer to that is, is yes either. But, you know, more importantly to me, I just don't think the weather makes sense uh for mls to ever switch to that kind of schedule and uh, why well, i get if you were going to do it why there'd be some appeal to doing it now um that just doesn't make sense and there's you know a host of other issues too i think you're, you'll probably get into some of them that we discussed too but um for weather alone i think it doesn't make sense yeah it's kind of a twofold issue where you're relying a lot on in-game revenue and ticket sales and not a lot of fans are going to go sit out in the cold and you're going to be competing with the NHL and NBA, which are indoor arenas. It's a lot more of a comfortable setting. So I think attendance wise, it would really suffer. And then TV wise, you know, in England and in Europe, you're, that's really the only sport in town or that's the number one sport in Europe. Uh, it's, it's the number four sport in the fall with NBA and NHL and the NFL. Uh, and then, you know, in the winter and the spring months, you're going to be competing with uh, the NHL and NBA. Uh, I would argue that MLS might be, fighting with the XFL if XFL ever takes off, which I, I think there's a decent chance that it does. So, you know, overall, you have more competition. You're going to lose in-game revenue. You're going to lose TV revenue. Um, I, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, um, from a business standpoint, to switch over to that uh, schedule. And as, as you mentioned, I don't think fans are going to like it. Any fans that are going to be in the North are going to completely freeze during these games uh, and it might work for football. You might fill a crowded stadium, uh, in, you know, for a few weeks in December and January, but throughout the entire winter into February, March. Um, I mean, we, we see the revenue revolutions attendance numbers go down pretty heavily in, you know, the early months of the season too, uh, when it's snowy and it's cold. So um, yeah, I, I agree with you hundred percent. And the, the one other thing that's worth mentioning is that right now all MLS contracts expire in December. Um, they go through the calendar year. If a player is signed for the 2020 season, that contract officially ends in on December 31st. So there's also a legal aspect to this where the MLSPA would have to agree to either postpone or extend all contracts six months. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of players that don't want to do that, or they're going to demand a lot of concessions, uh, which you know, they just did the CBA that essentially just reopens all of those talks. Uh, there's a lot of legal issues uh, switching to a European schedule as well. So, um, I mean, one way or another, the 2020 MLS season is officially ending in December, uh, whether or not there's games or not. Maybe it's an abridged season. Maybe they do. I don't know. I, I have no idea how they're going to handle it. But there's no way this season can be extended into 2021. Um, that also kind of ties into a question we got from Chris Lucas. He says, how many Rev players are on a contract year? And if this season is canceled, do we see any special assistance from uh, the league to help retain those players? Uh, and that essentially for the second part of that question, um, the answer is just no. There's no way the uh, the league can 
extend, as I mentioned, there's a lot of legal issues too. Uh, one thing that I learned yesterday from uh, a podcast, it was allocation disorder with uh, Paul Tenorio uh, of The Athletic. Um, it's on the Total Soccer show, show feed. If you're into the uh, legal aspects and contract contracts and stuff like that, uh, I, I give it a, a high recommendation. But um, one point that they mentioned yesterday is that uh, MLS players don't have a force majeure clause, which is in the NBA and the NHL. And essentially what that is, is when there's an act of God, um, this clause allows owners to suspend contracts and not give out pay. So the NBA and the NHL have these clauses. The owners haven't exercised these clauses yet, and they're still passing out their salaries to their players. But there's nothing like that in MLS. So MLS players, essentially, um, they they their contracts are being honored one way or another. Uh, so there's really no incentive for the MLSPA to rework a new schedule or extend their contracts unilaterally. Let let the league extend their contracts throughout next year. Um, you know, whoever is a free agent at the end of 2020 is set to be a free agent, and and you know, there's no way for uh, owners to suspend or cancel these contracts or delay them into the 2021 season. And if not. Uh, or, or if if it was, it'd be a major, major labor issue. So I think there's a lot of legal hurdles uh, in order to extend free agents into the 2021 season. Yeah, and, and the other thing too is you you, know, you look at the NBA, the NHL, and hypothetically you could maybe see a situation where um, you know if those leagues lost a season and trades have been made and everything was done that you know they somehow come to a conclusion with their players' associations that let's you know let's extend every contract for a year as, as what it was supposed to be and um, you know teams made trades and everyone did all these things that were kind of based off of um, expectations and those expectations didn't happen let's you know let's just keep our, the rosters as they are for another year I don't think that's going to happen but hypothetically I could almost see a scenario in those leagues where it happens um, but those are the best leagues in the world players aren't looking to leave the NBA to go to Europe unless they don't have an option in the NBA um, you know with MLS you know the best players in MLS that may have a year left in their contract um, even look at a guy on the revolution like Diego Fagundes um, I don't know that his play is necessarily getting him a lot of interest but you know as far as we're aware he has one year left in his contract um, if hypothetically if he does well this year or thought he was going to do well this year um, or you know even if he doesn't do well this year and there's no season um, you know he'll, he'll be a free agent at the end of the year and if he wants to go to Uruguay or somewhere else he can do that um, and there's you know a lot of other players that you know have been playing really well in MLS that would have an opportunity to go to Europe as free agents and they're not going to want their contract extended a year um, soccer players in particular and really all sports you know your, your career is a very short um, so to kind of give up another year and be you know if you're person that has an opportunity to go to Europe or elsewhere kind of be stuck in MLS for an extra year um, doesn't really seem like something that would you know be something that MLS players would, would readily agree upon and if you can't get everyone to buy in then I'm, I'm not sure there's any point to doing it for a you know a smaller group of the players um, so yeah I, I agree with Greg I don't think there's really any way that something gets done that um, tries to extend players contracts a year or, or keep keep retaining players that otherwise would have been able to leave and it kind of works two ways too where, I mean, I don't know, I don't think owners unilaterally would want that either. And I don't think players would unilaterally want that either. And what I mean by that is you mentioned Diego Fagundes. Um, you know, 
with Diego, maybe he wants to go play in Uruguay. Maybe he wants to sign with a different MLS team. Uh, or or you could say that, you know, maybe his market value essentially tanks because he needed kind of a comeback season to kind of build up his value and he didn't really get anything. So maybe he signs on for one more year or whatever. Uh, you know, we, we don't really know what Diego Fagundes' motivations are, but you have to think that he wants that freedom to leave. Then you look at someone like Michael Mancien, who signed a one-year contract with a team option for 2021. You know, <laughs> The Revs want to, you know, move that contract one year later where Michael Mancien is one year older and, you know, they, they have to pay that salary. They probably don't. You know, at that time, Henry Kessler is one more year out of college. He looks like he's going to be a starter anyway. Uh, you know, there's really uh, – do you, do you want to move Michael Mancien into the 2021 season? Probably not. So, you know, I, I think some owners and some club general managers are going to want to just kind of play it as it is. Uh, and that'll benefit some teams and it won't benefit other teams. It, it, it's going to be kind of a mixed bag across the board, but I, I don't see owners or the teams try to argue that all contracts should be extended an additional year because either way they're paying these players. They have, they, they are legally required to pay out these salaries. So extending all these contracts one additional year, I think that's going to bite a lot of, a lot of players, a lot of teams uh, if they're overplaying players and they're trying to clear the books. Uh, so, you know, do we want, do you want to extend Michael Mancien into another year and pay him 400,000 each year? Probably not. You, you, you probably don't want to do that. So, um, there, there's a lot of kind of issues going around. I, I just don't think any, it's in anyone's interests to do that, even if it wasn't legally complicated. So I do want to mention too, uh, he did mention what Revs players are on a contract year. You mentioned Diego Fagundes. He's the only one that we know for certain. And that was reported by Frank DeLapa last year when there was kind of all the Uruguay rumors. Um, there's been no public knowledge of an extension since. So we're still assuming that he is a free agent out of 2020. Uh, there's a couple other names. I mentioned Michael Mancien has a one-year deal with a team option. So he's technically under team control, but um, you have to think if this season is canceled, uh, they are going to decline. I believe there's a pay increase next year. This is kind of a show me year for Michael Mancien. Uh, one other person that I, I did want to bring up too is I think Brad Knighton would be out of contract. Um, if you remember last year, Brad Knighton and uh, Matt Turner signed extensions and Matt Turner's will, in the in the press release was considered a, or, or was described as a multi-year extension, uh, whereas Brad Knighton was just an extension. Uh, so uh, I, I'm under the assumption that is a one-year uh, extension for Brad Knighton. Um, and then there are a few other guys. Uh, Tony De La May and Wilfred Zahibo are in year three of their initial contract. They've been on options year to year. But, you know, you think about someone like Wilfred Zahibo, there is a piece by Frank DeLapa uh, the other day in the New England Soccer Journal about how Wilfred Zahibo is away from his family at this time. Uh, so, you know, if he is a free agent at the end of the year, um, you know, does he want to stay in New England? He's been spent a year away from his family. He might want to look to return uh, closer to his uh, family. Uh, and then you also have uh, Andrew Farrell and Teal Bunbury. Uh, they had new deals uh, as recently as the 2017-2018 offseason. Um, it's been a few years since they signed on. Maybe they are out of team options at the end of this year. Again, that's not known. That's my speculation. But um, you have to think that they would want to hit free agency if they're eligible. So um, there's a lot of, of questions and we don't really know for sure other than Diego Fagundes. Uh, but all of these players that I just kind of listed, um, it, it's really in none of their interests to automatically extend their contract for an additional year. Cause you know, if you're Andrew Farrell, you've been, you're, you're a little bit underpaid cause you're an American player. You've been 
option year, year to year. Same with Teal Bunbury. They might be able to sign for more money outside of New England uh, as a free agent now with a new CBA. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, all those guys you listed – uh, although, although with Michael Michael Mancia, and I guess uh, nobody expected him to be re-signed this year, so you, you never know. Maybe they will want to keep him another year if he doesn't play. Um, but yeah, no, I just there's a lot of reasons why even if you there was a way to make that work, um, it, it doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense for everyone involved. Um, and it is interesting. I know transfer market doesn't have everything right, but they um, do have a few players that they list having contracts expire in, in 2020. Um, and you know whether there's any truth to any of them, um, a lot of them make sense. One of them being Jeff Caldwell, Michael Mancian, uh, Tony DeLamea, as you mentioned, Seth Sinovic. It wouldn't be surprising at all if he only signed a you know one year contract or one year plus options, given um, the stage of the career he's in. Um, Andrew Farrell, who I would think I, don't, I can't remember when the last time the Rose resigned him, but that would be a, a big one. He signed a new deal in uh, before the 2018 season, so, so it's, it's a three year deal. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. feasible, or, or that any, there's any... options. Any veterans around year three, I'm, I kind of flag as potentially a free agent. Um, Jeff Caldwell would be a surprise because if I remember correctly, he was uh, typically super draft players have four years or one year with three team options. And so I, I, I believe he's in year three since the draft. So I, he should have. Although he was, he was, he was waived, right? So did the revs have to sign up to the rev sign him to a new contract rather than pick up his contract? I, so my understanding of the waiver draft rules, which I know there was some confusion of when it happened, but during the waiver draft, if someone selects them, I, I believe they still honor that contract. It's like picking up someone on waivers. You still acquire that contract. Yeah, that is just, how I understand it. It was just very confusing because the way the yes. revolution wrote it up was that they that they had the option to sign him rather than they picked up his contract. And then it later came out when somebody asked Bruce Arena about that and Arena got angry at the person for asking that question that he was already signed, um, even though it was a very legitimate question based on how the revolution presented it. Uh, so I, I think none of us know exactly what, what's going on there. We, we had a few... Uh, a long text conversations about trying to interpret these rules. And my understanding is that the um, re-entry draft is players out of contract. Um, and then the waiver draft are players that are, their options weren't picked up and another team has the, uh, has the option to basically, you know, take that contract and honor it. So that, that is my understanding of the waiver draft. Um, and obviously there are some, some slight differences, you know, I don't want to get too into it, but my understanding was that when the revolution selected Jeff Caldwell, they were acquiring that player's super draft contract with an additional year. Um, but as you say, um, then it was reported he was out of contract and they were negotiating a new deal. So maybe they did negotiate a new deal and they signed a one year thing. I have no idea, but uh, I don't know. MLS rules are just awful. But anyway, do we know how many years are on Carly's heels uh, contract? Because he's one of the guys listed on Transfer Market as having a contract that expires at the end of the year. And again, I don't think Transfer Market knows everything, but they do sometimes surprisingly get things right that year that you, you wouldn't be be sure of. And that'd be a big name um, to potentially have a contract expiring. Yeah. So, uh, and and I do want to really caveat that Transfer Market because um, I mean the the rate of accuracy on that website is not reliable i i, I don't I, I want that well known uh and i, I know this because i tracked who it said was a free agent in 2019 and a lot of those players had team options um so they, they might not be considering team options or, or right. mutual options or anything like that so i just want to throw that caveat out there um in terms of carly's heel i did not find anything in terms of the length of his contract so uh if he signed a two-year deal um that would be an issue but who, who i'm i'm who knows um yeah, completely unknown 
to how long he signed a contract for. And I so mean, it's a it wouldn't big, be a big concern. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be shocking for a guy of Carly's heels age to you know want to sign a two-year contract and have the freedom to perhaps go back to Europe um, if he did really well in those two years. So that, it, it wouldn't be shocking to me if that was the case. No, and and especially in the leagues he had played in, um, you know, I think coming to MLS was not a bit of a risk. But um, yeah, it's it's certainly not out of the question for him to sign a two-year deal uh, and see where it goes. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And if he's a free agent, you have to think he's going to attract interest from overseas. Absolutely. Yeah. So, that, so that would be that's yeah. a big, that's a big one to watch if his contract is in fact up. Um and again, a guy like him, you know, may not be someone that would have been agreeable to having those options at the end of his contract. Yeah. But yeah, most players probably have a team option, so it'll be interesting if the season is canceled, how do you evaluate who to retain and who to keep? Um because I I think that goes into kind of uncharted territory you know someone like christian pania he had an option last year which means he's either a free agent or he has another team option this year you know what happens with him um you know it's it's kind of tight i do know that bootner has a two-year contract so he will remain uh gustavo bow is still here uh there's a few others that we do know about guys like brandon by and Dwan jones who just signed a new contract they're likely um going to have team options so they'll probably be here so uh, but in terms of free agents who the team does not have control over my guess is that uh, diego fagundes and brad knighton kind of top the list of um, who who is most likely to leave. And then, as you mentioned, if you want to get really speculative, Carlos Hill. Uh, but that is complete speculation. We have no idea how long his contract was. Yeah, so that'll be a lot, a lot of things to of interest in this offseason, depending on how things play out. So that is our guess on how this, the uh, coronavirus suspension, uh, speculation on uh, how things will go. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's really all up in the air on how this is going to work out. But um, while we're, we're going to talk about some other uh, topics that have kind of come up. And one thing I wanted to address really quickly and kind of rant about, uh, we saw this on Reddit, but uh, since we last recorded our podcast, Tom Brady left for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which I will not comment on. Sean, I don't think we'll comment on the actual uh, <laughs> transaction ourselves because that'll lead to a completely separate rant. that we This don't isn't really Patriot want. recap. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but the question was posed on Reddit, how much uh, does – would a Patriots losing or the Patriots kind of falling a little bit, how much would that impact the revolution? Uh, and a question comes up like this all the time, like the Red Sox or the Patriots, when they kind of fall down, how much does it impact the revolution? So, um, Sean, I'll give you first dibs on this. And what are your thoughts? Because I went through the comments uh, on this Reddit page and I was highly disappointed. So, uh, Sean, what are your thoughts on uh, how the Patriots losing potentially could impact the revolution? Yeah, I, I see this comment way more than I would expect. It's not just a fringe comment anymore. It's something that a lot of people have speculated on. Um, and to me, it's kind of a ridiculous question because the Patriots are just, you know, the Patriots are the number one sports team in new England and a, you know, fall from grace might help bring more attention to the Boston Red Sox. Maybe I'm not sure. Cause they're also kind of having a fall from grace. Um, so yeah, I, I, I the, the amount of revenue that comes into the crafts from the Patriots is exponentially higher than the amount of revenue that comes in from the revolution to the crafts. So uh, it's just, you know, if Tom Brady leaves and the Patriots don't aren't a Super Bowl contender um, this year, and you know, they might still very well be a Super Bowl contender without Tom Brady, um, the Patriots are still going to bring in exponentially more revenue to the crafts 
than the Revolution are going to bring in. The Patriots are still going to get, you know, 66,000 people in the stands for every game. Um, if they have many years of losing, uh, they might not get 66,000. They might get 50,000 plus every game, and they're still going to bring in exponentially more money than the Revolution to the crafts. Um, so while I, I, I get why it's fun to speculate that, you know, Tom Brady going away and the Patriots maybe not being as good as they have been in the past um, may bring more attention to the Revs, it, it just, I don't think it, as a blip on the radar, I think the the revolution are you know the fifth sport in New England, um, and I think Kraft knows that. And I think even if the you know revolution start being much more successful, I don't think the amount of revenue they could bring in would be anywhere near what the Patriots, as an unsuccessful team, would bring in. So I, I just don't see it changing anything. And I also don't think the Patriots being unsuccessful is going to put any more bodies in the stands for the revolution. Um, if the revolution want more bodies in the stands, they're going to have to be a successful team, and or they're going to have to build a stadium in Boston. And I don't think you know anything to do with the Patriots really impacts that much at all. There, there's two ways that the revolution will grow their fan base. Well, uh, I, I guess that's kind of what we're looking for because the craft thing is ridiculous. I don't want to even like, it, it, you know, there's no way on earth that someone who owns an NFL team, let's take out Robert Kraft. Let's say someone who owns an NFL team and someone who owns uh, an MLS team, there is zero ways where an owner is just going to say, I'm not really interested in the NFL team anymore. I'm going to put all my eggs in the basket. I'm going to invest in the MLS side because NFL, their TV revenue is so high. Ticket sales are so high. They make so much money on the NFL that, you know, for Robert Kraft, like, yeah, the revolution are a side project, essentially. I mean, it, it just, the Patriots revenue dwarfs what the revolution do, even if the Patriots go 0 and 16. So, the idea that Rev that Robert Kraft is going to get frustrated with the Patriots and open the checkbook for the revolution, I think, is just a theory that is so incorrect. And we've kind of seen Kraft open up the checkbook just because the on the revolution in the past few years. We have three DPs now. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's just because he's embarrassed about MLS. Um, the idea that Robert Kraft can't operate two franchises – without having you know full attention on one or the other uh, i think is kind of nonsense I, I they're totally separate operate operational departments uh and and i think Kraft wants to win in both of them so i know there's a theory that Kraft doesn't invest when the patriots are winning but if i remember correctly they went out and they got jermaine jones right in the height of the patriots starting their dynasty so i i don't i reject the Kraft doesn't pay attention theory so my assumption is where this kind of question on reddit comes from is um you know, will fans get frustrated with the Patriots and then convert to the revolution? There's two ways to grow the Revs fan base. One is to build a stadium, particularly in Boston, uh, to get fans in the door, which, you know, that is a long way away, most likely. Two, you get more media attention. If the Patriots go 0-16, sports talk radio is going to talk about how the Patriots are 0-16. They are going to complain about the Patriots every single week. They are going to thrive on the misery and they are going to take phone calls nonstop about how terrible the Patriots are and how heads will roll. That is the, the, <laughs> and it's the same way with the Red Sox. I mean, the Red Sox could be absolutely terrible. And, you know, if you go back to that 2012 season, I know the Revs weren't particularly good in 2012, but you know, if you listen to sports talk radio, Pretty much every day they were talking about how the Red Sox were a disaster and how Bobby Valentine was a disaster. And this year going into the 2020 season, I guarantee you, even if the Revs were on pace for the playoffs and the Red Sox win 65 games, WEI and the Sports Hub are going to talk nothing about how the Red Sox are terrible because they're the number two team in New England. So the, the Patriots being bad is not going to gain you any more media attention. So the Patriots 
declining. I know some people were celebrating the Patriots losing um, on Rev's Twitter, which, you know, I understand if you're Jake Katniss and you're an Eagles fan, I get it. But there, there seem to be some Revolution fans that are anti-Patriot fans, and I don't know what that is about. But the, the Patriots could go 0-16 or 16-0, and and the Revolution are not going to gain a whole lot of media exposure either way. <laughs> the one other point I wanted to bring up, too, and because I agree with everything you said, is if you are a believer in the, the uh, Bob Kraft finite amount of time theory where he can only devote so much time to the Patriots and so much time to the revolution and not enough to both. Um, if, if you do believe that, I think the better argument is if the Patriots start doing poorly and Brady's gone and, you know, and Belichick goes, then Kraft has to put more time into the Patriots to fix that team because he's kind of been able to go on autopilot with Belichick controlling things. So if, if that's actually something that you believe, um, I, I would think the, the opposite uh, experience or the, what would be what you would see if, if, you know, Bill Belichick goes away and Tom Brady's gone and the Patriots start to do poorly. The other thing too, with these owners, I mean, let, let's talk about John Henry too. I mean, they're doing more than operating sports teams. They own a ton of things, you know what I mean? They're doing, they're doing a million different things right? and they're delegating these tasks. They're just collecting revenue essentially. So, I mean, I, I, I don't see any connection, you know, as a Red Sox fan, I'm not pissed off that Liverpool is winning all these things. I'm not saying like, Oh, John Henry's paying attention to Liverpool. You know, I, I know that there's some people are saying that <laughs> I know some people do that, but it's stupid. I mean, I, I have no idea where this thought process comes from that, you know, the Patriots losing will mean that Robert Kraft is going to sign more checks and bring in new players. I mean, he's brought in three designated players. I don't know. That's my rant. I, I have no idea where this thought process comes from. And every now and then it comes up. And uh, similar to my John Henry should buy the revs thing. Uh, I, 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 there are some myths that just grind my gears. So I wanted to just <laughs> briefly address that. And, and everyone on Reddit said, oh, yeah, this probably is a good thing for the revs. I have no idea why anyone thinks that. Zero idea why people think this. So I don't know. I mean, even when the revolution were doing well, the revolution went to MLS Cup, right? And they lose. And what was the response from the Boston Globe's top sports writer, Dan Shaughnessy? He said he sent out a tweet at, right within an hour of the, the revolution losing. And he said, I'm glad the revolution lost. So we no longer have to pretend soccer is relevant. Boston sports media is not going to respect soccer for a while. And the revolution being 0-16 or 16-0 doesn't change any of that. So that's my rant. Nope. Couldn't, Move, couldn't agree more. <laughs> moving on. Moving on from, from that. Uh, on the lighter side, Sean, we got an interesting story over the last three weeks from The Athletic about a former revolution player, Michael Augustine, who a lot of people probably don't remember Michael Augustine because he was not very notable, but... Uh, I would say the story is a bit notable. Sean, you want to explain uh, what, what happened uh, with this brilliant Mike Burns signing? Yeah, well, first of all, this is a, a great article overall. There's you know 25 stories in here. It's on The Athletic by Pablo Moore and Stam Steichel. Um, so if you are an Athletic subscriber, you should definitely read this. And even even if you're you know not a fan of these other teams, there are some fantastic stories about some of the big personalities in the league and some of the lesser-known guys. Uh, just 25 real gems in this. But um, two of the stories touch on the revolution, um, one of which is, is pretty funny about them stealing an Easter bunny after winning the the uh, the 2007 U.S. Open Cup victory um, against FC Dallas. Um, and that's worth a read. But the, the more interesting one is, is uh, in 
in 2011, um, towards the end of Steve Nichols' tenure as head coach, um, as as Greg mentioned, the Revolution brought in a guy named Michael Augustine. Um, and as you remember back then, the, the Revolution did a lot of scouting in Africa. They brought in guys like Nyasi, Mansali, um, and there were a few other players that they had brought in and uh, with varying levels of success. So Michael Augustine was an 18-year-old Nigerian midfielder um, who, you know, anytime the Revolution signed a, a teenager, you're you know, kind of excited about this you know young prospect coming up. But you know, he never turned out to be anything. He, you know, you barely saw any of him with the revolution that year. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, according to the story, he was not the player the revolution tried to scout. The revolution scouted and, and tried to sign. He was someone else entirely that showed up. Um, and, you know, instead of admitting to it and doing something about it, the revolution signed him to a deal because they were trying to avoid the, the ridicule of, of the whole situation. Um, he only made one appearance for the revolution in an open cup match. Uh, and apparently also, uh, he was accused of it by a teammate of stealing a watch out of his locker. Um, and though he denied this, um, which the team, you know, ended up being satisfied with, apparently he posted a photo on Facebook of himself wearing the watch. And then by June, his contract was terminated and Augustine never played professionally again. Um, so a, a pretty embarrassing story for the revolution in a 2011 season that was pretty embarrassing, even without this story. Um, and, you know, kind of a sad sad end towards the end of uh steve nichols tenure as the the revolution head coach um but this this whole article is full of pretty amazing stories um and if you need you know a, a, a much entertainment in this off season when there's no soccer going on or this this down season when there's no soccer going on um i highly recommend you know even if you're not an athletic subscriber subscribing just to read the story <laughs> and one thing that's interesting is uh, i've been kind of writing ideas of um, podcast ideas since we're probably going to be without soccer for a little bit. And one thing I, I considered doing is um, kind of looking back on Mike Burns' tenure. Uh, and it was going to be Mike Burns. Was he that bad? And kind of go through kind of his transaction history because Mike Burns, to his credit, did do a lot of things right. Uh, and then you see this story <laughs> um, and uh, you just it all comes flooding back to you. Uh, of the uh, signings that Mike Burns made uh, and the various missteps over time. Uh, one thing I did do, though, is I went back and I looked up the press release when Michael Augustine was signed. And do you know how they described uh, Michael Augustine? No, please tell me. <laughs> a great depth piece. Great depth. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> which, which was a recurring theme throughout the Mike Burns era. But I guess back at the start, at the end of the uh, uh, Steve Nichol era, back in 2011, um, we, we still had great depth piece. Uh, Michael Augustine coming in. Uh, it, it's really, really funny in hindsight, but um, yeah. And, and, and if he it was any good, he would just be entering, he would be in the peak of his career right now at 27. So <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't, I, I, pardon me if I, if you mentioned this, but uh, Michael Augustine hasn't played professional soccer since. That is probably the best part. He is just completely vanished. Uh, you know, who knows where he is right now. But uh, I mean, that that's almost like uh, Hauche uh, being released from the Revs, taking a year off and then signing in the Bolivian second division. I mean, just such a huge drop from grace. So, I mean, if you're, um, if you're 18 year old on an MLS roster, you should be able to find somewhere else to play. You would think. <laughs> you, yeah. 18 years old is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sean, we uh, did get one more uh, Twitter comment here. Uh, it's from uh, Jay Alexander Dolan of the Bent Musket. Uh, he says that he wishes he knew tigers only cost $2,000. I could have purchased a tiger instead of a camera. Uh, he's, of course, referencing Tiger King. Uh, Sean, I, I know you've been watching Tiger King a lot. Uh, what, you know, um, Are you surprised that tigers only cost $2,000? And are you going to be using your stimulus check 
uh, towards buying one. <laughs> I think I think I'm on a pass on the tiger. I, I heard they're uh, they're a pretty good thing for uh, wives to feed their husbands to. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully our listeners have, have seen Tiger King because if not, <laughs> all this. But uh, if uh, you haven't seen Tiger King, I highly recommend it. Sean, do you have any other uh, recommendations for people who are stuck inside for the foreseeable future? I mean, I've been going back and binge watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, which the mindlessness of, of, of that show has, has helped uh, provide entertainment and get me away from thinking about the real world. Um, so that's what's been on my list. And now I'm, I'm jumping back into Ozarks, which um, I had watched the prior seasons of. Also, another show I've liked is, is Money Heist, which just released a new season that I haven't started yet. So there's quite a few things that I'm looking forward to watching. How about you? Uh, besides Tiger King, uh, I will say right before Tiger King, it seems like ages ago, but um, we watched McMillions, which is on Hulu, which is a documentary about the um, McDonald's Monopoly game and how it was a giant scam. Uh, that is, it's not as wild as Tiger King because nothing is as wild as Tiger King. Uh, but um, that takes a lot of twists and turns, and there are a lot of interesting characters uh, throughout that show. Um, and it kind of goes a lot of places that you just don't expect it to. Um, and the FBI agent who was investigating uh, this case is also just downright hilarious. Uh, so uh, I, I highly recommend McMillions uh, if you get the chance. It's kind of taken a, a very far back seat uh, to uh, Tiger King. But uh, yeah, if you're, you're stuck indoors and you're looking for a six-part documentary, uh, I highly recommend giving McMillions a watch. Uh, before we wrap up, too, we should mention uh, former Revolution player Marshall Leonard and former Revolution recap guest. Uh, Marshall Leonard uh, was on Outside the Lines yesterday with uh, Taylor Twelman. Um, he is currently working in New York City as a healthcare worker. Uh, certainly, he's gotten a lot of attention to. Uh, so, I just wanted to give him a shout out and all the healthcare workers that are currently working through the coronavirus. Uh, and Sean, I, I know you have a couple of stories about uh, Marshall Leonard uh, being down at Bryant. Yeah, well, first Bryant of all, University. Well, first of all, I mean, Marshall Leonard just a. Uh, uh, class act through and through he was more of a rotational guy on the revolution but he did part of the team for really the entirety of their uh best years 2002 through 2007 um not necessarily a regular starter but a guy that was a key depth piece for that team i think taylor twelman kind of summed it up well as you know he wasn't a flashy guy but he was you know always willing to do the hard work as either a left back or left midfield which is you know as people that have watched the revs for a long time know has not always been the the strongest position for the revolution so to have him there um as kind of a constant as a rotational guy was was big for the revs but yeah um he was he was always one of those guys that i think you know, back back in those days, if you were an MLS player on the you know lower end of the roster, you weren't making that much money. And I think he was a guy that always knew that he was going to have a, a career outside of MLS at some point, and cared great deeply about his education. Um, for those that don't know, Greg and I both went to to Bryant, and during our freshman year there, we'd actually see Marshall Leonard back in in 2007 when he was still on the Revolution. Um, attending night classes at Bryant, and you'd you know you'd run into him in the library, and you you wouldn't meet a friendlier guy. Um, always happy to to talk and everything. So um, it's it's great to see that he's you know been successful becoming a physician, and now is is working in New York. Um, and you know couldn't be more excited for the guy. And but what a tough time to be jumping into that field, and um, you know really a hero to be at this point in time, you know jumping in and, and doing that. Um, in New York, where it's really such a hot spot. So, you know, best of luck to him. Um, and I'm, you know, glad to see he's getting some plaudits from ESPN and elsewhere for you know, his deserved heroism of what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and it's absolutely crazy what's going on in New York City. And uh, I don't know, it's great to see a, a former Rev uh, player being on the front line of that and taking it down. So, 
Yeah, and and it, it does bring me to um, what what would be an interesting podcast idea someday is kind of looking at um, some of the more interesting things that former Revolution players have gone on to do, um, because there are quite a few interesting stories. And just without digging too deep into it, um, I was just trying to think of some of the the cool things that revolution cool interesting things revolution players have done since leaving the revs and you know one of the other guys that a lot of people know about who left to kind of go into the medical field was zach boggs who left the revs in, in 2012 they take a fulbright scholarship at lester university and study cancer um so obviously another guy that kind of got involved in us and then went back into to playing lower division soccer um later on uh and then there was of course chase Hilgenbrink who left the revs in 2008 to become a catholic priest uh, one of the more odd odd career moves that we've seen from revolution players and uh, another guy conley adosian who in 2005 was on the revolution retired in 2009 um, he already had his pilot's license when he was on the revolution but now he's working as a commercial pilot for en- endeavor air which is a regional airline for delta um, so another another big switch um, and then finally one of the other ones that i always thought was fascinating as a, as a lawyer myself was zach simmons who um went to UMass and in 2009 was drafted by the revolution to be their third string goalkeeper um, and then got accepted into Yale Law School, which for those in the legal field know is, you know, the number one law school in the country. And um, you go to Yale Law School, you're probably going to make a, a lot more money than someone who's a third string goalkeeper on the revolution. Um, but he you know ended up playing for the revolution and then, you know, eventually made the decision, I think, in, in June to leave the revs and actually end up going to Yale Law School. So a lot of a lot of cool stories from the revolution and I'd be interested to do kind of a whole podcast on that, but we'd probably need some help from other people to let us know other guys that we're not thinking of. Cause those are just the first ones that, that come to my mind. Yeah. Well, well, we'll, we'll write it down on the, uh, the list of potential uh, future podcasts. Cause as I say, we, we have some time here, Sean. So it's <laughs> <laughs> <That is> true. <laughs> uh, it, it was worth noting too, that Marshall Leonard was the, was he the second uh, guest on revolution recap, Sean? Or third, he was the second player to appear on Revolution Recap. Right. So, uh, in the the first month of Revolution Recap's existence, we had I think Luke Verkalone was on the first show, and then Revs, um, I believe, it was general manager at the time, Craig Tornberg was on the second show, and then Mike Burns, I believe, was on the third show, and Marshall Leonard was on the fourth show. Well, and I want to just kind of bring up that I want to congratulate you because it's been 15 years since the first episode of Revolution Recap uh, back in the AM radio days. So uh, when I was looking up that Marshall Leonard stat, I noticed the uh, dates kind of aligned with uh, in April. And uh, it's been a, a full 15 years of – well, I guess not a full 15 years. I guess there was a bit of a hiatus while New England soccer today was going on. But, uh, yeah, congratulations on that accomplishment of, uh, <laughs> of the Revolution Recap uh, 15-year anniversary. Thanks. Yeah, as for those that that don't know, um, I started writing about the Revs in 2002 for a newspaper called the the Sports Journal, who was actually looking. Uh, I was actually replaced Doug Chapman, which was kind of big shoes to fill for those that followed the team back then. He was one of the uh, the TV broadcasters for the Revs, um, and back when I was 13, so I actually made some appearances. They got on WARL AM 1320, which had a Providence studio and now has different call letters and is located elsewhere. Um, but they got a, a radio show, The Sports Journal Live, that I made a few guest appearances on. And then in 2005, I think they took over all programming or a certain portion of the programming and um, asked me if I wanted to do a, a radio show when I was 15 at the time and had no experience on radio other than a few guest appearances. Um, so I was kind of thrown into the fire and just started doing an hour-long weekly show on the revolution that lasted four years on the radio and then has been off and on in, in various podcast forms since. But 
uh, a big thank you to Scott McPherson, if he happens to be listening, for giving me that opportunity uh, to somebody who was 15 and had zero radio experience other than doing a, a few call-ins to discuss the revolution on, on his show. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, um, you tweeted out the link to the first episode uh, the other day. I, I will say the audio quality uh, and the... Uh, <laughs> and the uh, how do I say it? The banter has uh, improved slightly over 15 years. Uh, I think I think we were, we're recording. We got a little better at it. <laughs> I, think, I think I think that show was recorded off an AM radio at my parents' house from <laughs> a good distance away from Providence. So that's why the uh, the audio quality was perhaps not the best back then. <laughs> Although it probably not improved since uh, 2010 or 29, because I remember you recording podcasts similarly in college uh, to how we're doing it now with uh, just over the internet. Uh, and on Skype or whatnot. So, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's been a slight, slight improvement since uh, 2005. I'll so. <laughs> well, we had back then we could actually broadcast, uh, you know, music, which we could we could use bump music because I, I was on AM radio instead of on a podcast. I was gonna <laughs> say that. Frank the Machine Head back in the day. Yep. That's your intro music. It's yeah, that that is a bit of a downgrade compared to our uh, royalty free uh, music <laughs> that we have now. So, yep. Uh, before we wrap up, we did want to send our condolences to the family of John DeBrito, who was the original member of the New England Revolution 1996 team. He made six appearances with the United States uh, men's national team and 26 appearances with the Revs. Uh, he passed away uh, earlier this week at the age of 51. So I uh, just wanted to send along condolences uh, to him or to his family. Um, Sean, before we wrap up, uh, anything else you want to mention? Yeah, I, I tweeted about this, but I thought I was very cool that the uh, that ESPN is doing a a marathon of MLS games on Monday um and then i noticed that every single game involved the los angeles galaxy um so four la galaxy games on monday i think it was uh, david beckham's debut game against chelsea fc so a friendly match um interesting choice uh landon donovan's first mls cup which is first san jose against the galaxy um the first ever mls cup which was the galaxy against dc united um and then the la playoff derby from last year so la versus lafc so i think we've got you know eight teams appearing um, in these four matches, and four of them are the Galaxy. Uh, one of them is another California team. One of them is another Los Angeles team. And then we have Chelsea, a Premier League team, in a friendly match in DC United. And I just think it's a little bit disappointing that uh, ESPN didn't you know, pass around and, and share the wealth a bit with some other MLS teams making an appearance, especially when you've got teams like Seattle and Atlanta that have such great fan bases and have been involved in some really good games. Um, I don't know if I'm being too harsh, but to even just to see, I know David Beckham's first appearance for 10 minutes in a friendly match was uh, a big deal, but um, is that, you know, that, that game doesn't make you want to turn on the TV. Whereas, you know, you look back at some of the historically amazing games in MLS and one of them that stands out to mind is the 2004 Eastern conference final with the revolution in DC United, where DC took the lead, the lead three times. The revolution came back three times, uh, went to penalty kicks. You know, I, I think that was the most exciting MLS game I've seen. Um, featured some you know huge names like uh, Clint Dempsey, Steve Ralston, Taylor Twelman, Jaime Moreno, Freddie Adu. Back when back when people were still hopeful he was going to be good, uh, Christian Gomez, just you know Ben Olsen, a lot of a lot of great players in that game, um, and you know a lot of other games like that that I think would have made more sense to perhaps show than David Beckham's ten minutes in a friendly against Chelsea. And you got to think too, uh, LA Galaxy fans aren't going to sit and watch a marathon of games, but. I don't know. I, I you could really just play MLS cups or it's not like they don't have all the time in the world to, uh, you know, uh, play 
old games. There's nothing, no sports going on right now. So, um, yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen some MLS cups or some kind of classic games, as you had mentioned. Um, I, I will say I appreciate teams taking the effort of uh, replaying their old games, but I do not understand for the life of me why they are geo and why people outside of New England cannot watch old Revolution games. Um, it's a bit frustrating for me personally, as someone who lives outside of New England, but um, overall, in general, I, I think MLS is really dropping the ball in terms of uh, how to handle this type of thing. Yeah, I, w- I would like to know the, the logic behind that. Like, is there is there a bandwidth issue? Is in twenty twenty, do we not have enough bandwidth to, to broadcast nationwide, or would even would even would there even be that many people that would want to watch it outside of New England that would lead to that being a problem? I I just don't really understand that, um, especially for old games. Like, I can't imagine they're they're legally stuck to just showing it here, unless it was you know na- maybe a national TV game they would be. But I, I'm I'm a little bit lost on that too. Yeah, I really. Do not get it whatsoever. The other thing, too, I I noticed was they played the uh, 2014 games online. And then I think NBC Sports Boston played the uh, 2014 Eastern Conference uh, finals uh, on TV. Uh, It was like a a few days apart. And I was kind of thinking, you know, there are so many great classic games that you can go back to in the you know 2000s. Um, I don't know. It just kind of seems a bit redundant to play the exact same game uh, kind of back to back in the same week. Um, I, I think a lot of Revolution fans, like a lot of MLS fans, and myself included, are kind of newer fans that have kind of just joined in the past decade. And if you're a Revs fan, you kind of missed that uh, kind of the glory days. Uh, so, you know, I, I remember, I, I think it was on, was it on ESPN or who played it? But someone played the 2006 MLS Cup, uh, and I, I enjoyed that game immensely. I'd never watched that game uh, front to back, even though I knew the end result. So um, I, I think it'd be great if they ended up playing, uh, you know, more games from the early days of MLS. Um just to kind of show it off. I'd, I'd like to have never sat through those games front to back. So um, as, as a new fan, which I think a lot of MLS fans are, uh, I think kind of playing the classics, quote unquote, uh, make a lot more sense. Right. And, there, it, you know, speaking from a revolution perspective, there are so many good players on those mid and early 2000s teams that, you know, especially now when the revolution have been honoring those guys with the you know best, best all time revolution teams. And you know, we talked about it on the podcast. Um, I think there's a lot of revolution fans that would be excited to, to see that. And, um sure you know la versus la you know last fall was a, a good game but um am i as excited to watch that again as i would be to you know watch one of the classic mls games from the mid 2000s i i would say no yeah yeah so i don't know I, hopefully i mean as we've said a million times uh, we're, we're here for a while so maybe we'll get a little more access to uh the games from the vault uh maybe, maybe not but we'll see uh, that wraps us up. Uh, before we leave, Sean, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can follow me at, at Sean Aldani, who you won't see as many exciting stats these days because there's uh, <laughs> no games to post stats for, but maybe I'll start looking to uh, Belarusian Premier League stats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe I'll hop back into it. I'll start tweeting out our uh, Belarusian gamble, gambling tips uh, if I ever get the hang of this thing. But uh <laughs> I, I will actually let me ran it one more time. So uh, a new newly promoted team to Belarus. Uh, they were the third. They finished third in the second division last year. The team was founded in 2016. They played, I think, the defending champs on the road. They didn't win a single road game in the second division last year. Guess who? Guess who won? Guess who? Won? How does that work? You're telling me that's not rigged. Give me a break. Are, or are you just making a good case for why there should be promotion relegation in MLS? <laughs> <laughs> No comment. That's a whole. That's a whole other podcast. That I'm sure. You know, do. as as long as this goes on, I still don't think we're going to get to that podcast. <laughs> no, no. That that'll uh, that'll be back to back with the uh, hey, the revs finally opened a new stadium podcast. So. <laughs> 
You can follow us at Revolution Recap and be sure to also like our Facebook page and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you are listening. Uh, we are unsure of when we will be back with our new episode, uh, our next episode, uh, but we will check in whenever news unfolds uh, or we find something to talk about. So uh, we hope all of our listeners are well during this time and remain safe. Uh, but until our next episode, thank you everyone for listening and go Revs. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.